And so I want to continue with what I began last time uh, regarding that theme of what is God's purpose for your life and are you living in it? Or you could say, are you living in light of it? Or are you living because of it, because of God's purpose in your life? Turn with me again back to Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. You remember that's where I started. For those of you who are with us, I started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That text is not only one of the foundational passages in all our Bibles, seeing as it does, it comes in the first book of the Bible, but it says so much to us about the purpose of God in creating us. And certainly one of the things that it is communicating among many things is that God created us in His own image and after His own likeness. And you remember I said to you that that concept of being created in the image and likeness of God is of profound significance to all of us, especially when you tie that truth to the truth that God has a purpose for all of us as we are created in, in His image and after His likeness. Now it does allude to, it does by implication talk about a purpose and one of those purposes of God is to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God says, be fruitful and multiply, verse 28, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And while it does say that, I think I can confidently assert that most of us would say, well, if that's what God was doing in creating me, I haven't lately, as far as I know, been ruling over any fish of the sea or any birds of the sky or any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, I have done my part, and certainly the Quinn family has, to be fruitful and multiply <laughs> and attempt to fill the earth, even though I think at least from our vantage point, the earth is filled from our, fa from our family's viewpoint. Uh, eight is enough. And yet, at the same time, if indeed that was the mandate from God to us, how are we ruling over this earth? How are we doing that? Well, every one of us would probably say, I have some part in that, I just don't know what part. I know that God has created me in His image and after His likeness. I know that, of course, means that I have a mind, I have a will, I have emotions, I'm not like those fish of the sea. I'm not like those birds of the sky. I'm not like those creeping things that creep all over the earth. 
I'm created differently because I'm created after the image of God by having that mind, that will, that emotions that none of those things have, the animal world, the plant kingdom. But if I were to step back and ask God, well, how am I to rule? What is my purpose on this earth? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to express your image to my fellow mankind? And that is really a question that so many people often ask, especially as it relates to their vocation, the person to whom they should marry, the children that they might have, the career path, the job choice, uh, the way that they live their life, the purpose for which they are created. And it doesn't quite say everything there in Genesis 1 that fills out that concept. And as I said last time, I want to free you up because all those things that I mentioned, a career path, a job choice, a, a marriage, a family, all the things that make up what we do each day in our lives as those who are created in the image and likeness of God, the Bible doesn't tell us individually. It doesn't say, you be a plumber, you be an artist, you be a pastor. We have to, in a sense, figure that out on our own. Now, it's not as though God doesn't lead us. It's not as though God doesn't, in His providence, put us in a position to have skill and education and come to a place where we're comfortable and it seems as though we have aptitudes for some of those things. And it's certainly true that He puts desires in our hearts to pursue certain things that we're comfortable with, that we enjoy, so much so that at times we can even say, and this would be wrong, I fulfill my purpose on this earth because of the job that I've been given. You say, now, why would that be wrong? Well, that's just not all of it. It may be some of it, but that's not really the ultimate purpose. That may be a purpose, but it isn't the end for which God created me. You say, well, what is that end for which God created me, created us, created mankind, especially believers? And what I tried to assert last time and that I want to reemphasize this morning and even next time is this. God has created all of us for the ultimate purpose of knowing Him, loving Him, serving Him, fearing Him, following after Him, praying to Him, obeying Him. And you know that all of those things that I just gave you in that little list and so much more is everywhere in our Bibles, everywhere. And we can, with relative certainty, as we search the Scriptures, find verses like that, passages which speak in that way on almost every page of our Bible. And what it does is it frees me up not to be so caught up in that vocation, what I'm supposed to do, who I'm supposed to marry how many children we're supposed to have, if we have children, or what kind of purpose in life am I to fulfill. In fact, truth be told, I was up all night. 
Someone called me and they said, I need you. And someone who's very, very close to me. And that very kind of conversation ensued when I got in my car and I drove to where they live and I sat down with them and I talked with them at length and I prayed with them and I said, I love you dearly and I don't want you to struggle and I know you're confused and I know you're discouraged and I know you're dismayed because you're not quite finding what appears to be God's niche, His, his path. His, his blessing. And I want it so desperately for you. But I said to that person and I say to you this morning, it isn't in the things we do necessarily. It isn't in the accomplishments that we achieve. It isn't in the vocational path we want to tread. It isn't that life partner that we want to have. It isn't in any of those things as important and as good and as valuable and as excellent all those things are. What God says to us on the pages of Holy Scripture over and over and over again in a multiplicity of ways, in a variety of ways, undoubtedly in that variety of ways to challenge us to see through the prism of all of those passages the very same thing. And the very same thing is this. The ultimate pursuit of God. The way to know His purpose. The way to walk in that purpose. And to have joy in that purpose. And to know that you're fulfilling that purpose. That you're living in light of that purpose. Is one simple but profound eternal truth. And that purpose is that God has created you in His image and after His likeness to know Him, to love Him, to pursue Him, to put all of your heart, your mind, your strength, everything about you into that passionate pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ. And then, in the great providence of God, in the infinite wisdom of God, in the eternal plan of God, because He is infinitely perfect and wise, and He's this providential God who sovereignly orchestrates every finite detail of our lives, there is no alien molecule in the universe, no no random cell anywhere that he does not have complete sovereign control over. And when we passionately pursue him, when we love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we can free ourselves up about all of the details of our individual life to his care because we're fulfilling his purpose for us. And he'll be the one to bear the burden of where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to marry and what job I'm good at and who will be crossing my path that I can impact and who will be crossing my path for which I'm impacted. Did you know that that's the ringing theme of Scripture? It does not 
even our friend John Piper have said so capably in our age, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. If we are passionately pursuing our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior that we say we love and serve, then God will take care of all the rest. Does it mean that I am fatalistic and that I just lack the kind of initiative because I think if I'm just pursuing Christ, then God will do all the rest? No. The Bible tells us to be active, to be purposeful, to be vigilant, to take the initiative. But all the while, if I allow myself to take that initiative, to be vigilant, to pursue my course in life apart from, against Him, at variance with His will and purpose for me, then my plans will all be frustrated. And He will continually remind me over and over again in a thousand different ways, you're not pursuing me. You're not pursuing the prize. You're not wholly after me. You're not doing what I've asked you to do. You're scurrying around to try to find out what your purpose is in life. And I've told you over and over and over again in my word, your purpose in life is to pursue me with your whole heart. Turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. You remember last time I told you four places in the Old Testament, four places in the New Testament. I went through it so quickly. But I want to sort of redo that, not with the verses that we covered last time, but with even new verses. And even next time with other verses that share with you over and over again the same truth, and that is to pursue God so as to fulfill the very likeness of God and the very image of God in your life. Joshua chapter 24. You know, of course, that very famous text, Joshua 24, 15. He says, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. You might even have as a family uh, put that up in a frame at your house, right? A lot of people put that on the front door. They'll put it on the wall in their living room prominently. Hey, look, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But I want you to understand the context here. Look back at verse 14. And remember I said last time that there is another way of saying, know the Lord, pursue the Lord, love the Lord, obey the Lord. And it's that phrase, fear the Lord, right? Fear the Lord. And remember, fear the Lord is basically two things in my thinking, two things. It is a holy reverence for God and a healthy dread of God. Notice I said healthy. It's a healthy dread. Why? Because He's holy other than we are. He's majestic. He's holy. He's righteous. He's completely different than we are. And we are to dread Him because of that. But it's a healthy dread because no longer is He my judge. He's my heavenly Father. And I have a holy awe of Him, holy reverence. And this is what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. 
and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Notice, first part of the verse, fear the Lord. Last part of the verse, serve the Lord. Those are synonymous. Fear the Lord, serve the Lord. Now verse 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, in other words, if you don't want to, you don't want to serve the Lord, as Joshua does, hearkening back to their experience in Egypt when they were doing a whole lot of things except serving Yahweh, right? If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And notice what they said as a result of his commanding words. Verse 16, the people answered and said, notice they answered in unison, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, Joshua, for He is our God. Implied, He is our God too. Now, I'm telling you, that sounds bold. That sounds passionate. That sounds fervent. That sounds like you have a collection of people, namely the Jews, the children of Israel, who will stop at nothing to forsake the gods of Egypt and to do everything to pursue the God of Israel, Yahweh God. But notice Joshua's response in verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord. What? You will not be able to serve the Lord? Why? For He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which He spoke to us. Thus shall it be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then, jo jo then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. Now what happened? You know the flow of biblical history? Did they fulfill their promise? No. All except two died in the wilderness. It's amazing. 
I mean, they're strong here. No, Joshua, but we will serve the Lord. And you go ahead and set up that stone, and it will be a long-lasting covenantal witness against us if we should forsake Yahweh. And they did forsake him, and that stone was a witness against them. You know, when God says, I'm going to create man in my image and after my likeness, it is for the purpose, as it were, that a stone be set up, which would be a witness against us, those of us who say we profess to know God through Jesus Christ and who are all about serving Him and pursuing Him and loving Him and fearing Him with that holy awe and that healthy dread. And if, in fact, I forsake the Lord, then this covenantal stone will be a witness against me. Now, none of us want to be there. None of us want to pursue that place, that witness against us. And you say, well, that's, that's the old covenant. No, that's the Old Testament. That's the old people of God. We're the new people of God. What's the implication of this text for us here today? Here's the implication, at least one of them. I may not be serving foreign idols that have been set up on the mantle of my fireplace. I may not be bowing down to a carved image like they did, whether it was in Egypt or beyond. And I may not have forsaken the Lord by bowing down to such an image and seeing that as a replacement for the God of Israel. But in so many similar ways, even with the worship of my job, even with the idolatry of my own wicked heart, I may not be able to say that I'm serving a, a literal statue. But in so many other ways, if I'm not passionate about my pursuit of Jesus Christ each and every day, then I'm an idolater nonetheless. It doesn't really matter if there's a statue on the mantle. There's a statue in my heart. John Calvin once said in his Institutes, the human heart is a virtual factory of idols. And we produce them at a blithering pace. And when we do, we're committing the same kinds of sins that Joshua is warning the children of Israel against right here. And every time I bow down to that idol, whether it's the idol of work or the idol of play or the idol of money or the idol of relationships or whatever it may be, and in whatever form it comes and however I may have formed and shaped that idol in my own life to be or idols, I'm committing idolatry and I'm de facto saying I will serve it, not the Lord. And I think there are even times when people assume they come innocently and say, but what about that career path and what about this issue and where am I going and what is my purpose and how am I going to get there and what about the money that's going to be used to support me in this and what about that family and what about the loss of all things? 
And what about that disease? And what about this malady? And what about this person who's injuring me? And what about all of the things that people have done to come at me, to come against me, to ridicule me, to criticize me? And notice, I could go on and on. And what is the commonality in a list like that? Me, me, me. You say, well, that's because it's happening to me. I'm uh, far more concerned about what's happening to me than what's happening to the next guy. Well, you see, that, that may actually be part of the problem. Because we all have the tendency, myself included, to be self-consumed, self-focused, self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-aware, self-aggrandizing, self-perpetuating, self-worshipping. And that's why Joshua, in effect, is saying, you've got to choose. You have to choose. And when the final choice comes, it's really as easy as saying something like this. It is either the God of the Bible or it's some other God, some other self-made God, some other self-constructed deity. And it's not just what Joshua is saying. You remember I told you that there's another place that talks about the fear of the Lord, and I think I alluded to it. Look at Job. Job chapter 28, I think it is. And I give this as an example because is there not a better example in the whole of the Old Testament than the person of Job? who had so much taken away from him and who could have been so very tempted to say, but what about me and what's happened to me? Everything has been taken away. And he had, had these bad counselors who continually gave him the kind of advice that God says at the end of Job, I'm against them. I'm for Job. I'm against them because they gave counsel that was not right. And what does Job say in Job 28, 28? And to man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord. That is what? Wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Isn't that just another way to say what Joshua said in Joshua 24? Fear of the Lord. Here he says, fear the Lord, which is wisdom, and depart from evil is understanding. Positively, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. Negatively, depart from evil, that's understanding. You see, if you really want to have wisdom and understanding, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Didn't I quote last time Ecclesiastes 12, 13? Fear the Lord, depart from evil, for this applies to how many people? Every person every person, so that you and I are a living embodiment of what it means to have true wisdom and to gain right understanding because we're fearing the Lord, which means I'm wholly revering Him and I'm healthily dreading Him because He's so infinitely more than I could ever be. And I'm going to depart from my own understanding. I'm going to forsake my own understanding. In fact, look at Proverbs 
Proverbs chapter 1. This is, this is in so many places in our Bibles. So many places. Proverbs chapter 1. This is in the introduction to the book, and it's introducing us as a capsule statement for the rest of the book. And he says in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's another way of saying knowing God, right? Serving God, obeying God, loving God, fearing God, standing in awe of Him, dreading His holy otherness. And in fact, chapter 3, that very famous passage, beginning in verse 5, Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. We tend to stop there in our memory verse, but what about verse 7? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It's amazing. Chapter 9, verse 10. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You, you don't just have understanding by fearing the Lord. By the fear of the Lord, it is understanding. It's the very definition of what understanding is. You don't just have it. You are understanding if you fear the Lord. You are understanding the universe. You are able to come to grips with everything that's going on in our world, even that which seems very difficult to ponder. Now you say, well, okay, fear the Lord. That's one of these equivalent statements, one of these synonyms about pursuing God, loving God. What's, a, what's another? What's another in our Bibles? Turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. This is, this is almost, in a sense, an overlay of the most positive, the most exquisite, the highest the most enviable. What do you mean? Look at Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom am, have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now, my friends, my dear beloved friends, is that hard for you to say? Could we have true confessions? I confess, as I'm standing here, that that is one of the most challenging verses in all the Bible. I mean, I know what he's saying. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? Here's that challenging part. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Well, boy, I'm not sure. Because there's a lot of desirable things on the earth. And I'm, not, I'm just not absolutely sure that I could say that, especially under a lie detector test. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see, if if you're out of a job right now, if you're needing work, some of you are. Or if you've lost a loved one to death, divorce, desertion. If you've just been to the oncologist's office and you hear those frightful words, you have cancer. Whatever it is, can you say, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's a challenging word. That's a challenging word. And because it's a challenging word, it shakes us all to the core and it causes us all to say, including myself, Lord, is this true of me? Is this an accurate depiction of someone like me who says I'm a Christian? I profess to know Jesus. I've I've been converted to Christ. But could I really say that about my relationship with God? Well, if, if you are working toward that, However, haltingly and failingly and falteringly those steps are in that pursuit. If that's your intent, and even if that's not the perfection of your life, but it is the direction of your life. You are going toward that purpose, and it is growing in an ever greater reality day by day. Then guess what? You're on the path of not worrying about what that oncologist has just said. You're not going to lapse into a sinful response and say, God, what are you doing? Why? This is unfair. It's not right. I reject this because of the implications of what this is going to mean, not only for me and the change of my life and lifestyle, but my family and the burdens they will have to to carry. And Lord, I've been asking you for a job. I've been asking you for work. I've been asking you for a spouse. I've been asking you for saved children. I've been asking you in my prayer requests for 101 different things. And I just don't seem to be getting the answers that I think I should. Then maybe Psalm 73 is for you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. How about... Jeremiah, chapter 9. You remember last time I shared with you Isaiah 55? Similarly, in Jeremiah chapter 9, a passage you all know very, very well. Verse 23 of Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and what? Knows me. Knows me. Not just, just, I know that there is a God, and I know that he is defined for me in the Bible. 
This is not talking about knowledge for knowledge's sake. That's important, but this is what it's really saying. I know God in the sense that I'm all about pursuing an intimate relationship with God. That's what it's saying. And it's using as those contrasts someone who believes through his own wisdom he can boast of that wisdom and someone who is mighty who can boast of that might and someone who has a lot of money who boasts in his riches as over against the person who boasts of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth for I delight in these things, declare the Lord. And I would say that if I'm growing, ever increasing in my pursuit of knowing this God, then I'm delighting in what He's delighting in. And there is blessing at that place. There's great blessing. Think of it this way. Lord, I just want to delight in the things that you delight in. That's, that's the way I want to live my life. I want the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of this life to grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. I want to be enraptured with His love. I want to pursue Him with all my might. I want to see in Him that He is my portion forever, to borrow the psalmist's words. And then look at Jeremiah 17. This may be my favorite passage in all of the Old Testament. Because it gives the choice like Joshua was, was giving it so clearly. Jeremiah 17, look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. His, uh, his body, his arm, his uh, prowess, his strength, his know-how, his wisdom, his might, his riches. Cursed is that man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart does what? Turns away from the Lord. You see, if you're focusing on the things in which you're trusting that aren't the Lord, then that is automatically meaning that your heart will turn away from the Lord. You can't have it both ways. You can't sit on the fence. For, here's the illustration, if you're like that, he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Now, how dry and arid is that? Anybody signing up for that journey? I mean, come on, it's so obvious. But is it so obvious that we will work diligently to forsake that way? Look at the next verse, verse 7. Here's the contrast. Remember verse 5, cursed is the man. Here's verse 7, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who doesn't trust in mankind and who makes flesh his strength. Rather, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. You know he's got us both ways there, objectively and subjectively. Objectively, the Lord can be trusted, verse 7b, and subjectively, therefore, you can trust in Him. I trust in the Lord because the Lord can be trusted. Ask yourself this. If I trust in my riches, can those riches be trusted? Book of Proverbs says, watch out for wealth 
flies away. It's here today, gone tomorrow. That check may not be in that mailbox tomorrow. But you boast in your wisdom, boast in your might. Cursed is the man who does that, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he, in contrast to that dry, arid desert, stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant, rather, this is the man, the man who trusts in the Lord because the Lord is his trust. He will be like a tree planted by the waters. Does, not, does that not sound like Psalm 1? That extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. What do you do when the heat comes? I don't fear, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. How about Malachi? Malachi chapter 4. Oh, I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll even do a part 3 next week. Malachi chapter 4. I selected this because this is the last prophet before the intervening 400 years in Israel when there was no prophet. This is the prophet Malachi, not the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, verse 1, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I do not want to be in that group. But I want to be in this group. Verse 2. But for you who do what? Fear my name. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That's the same kind of contrast as Jeremiah 17. You see what I'm saying? It's all about pursuing Christ. And in fact, look at Matthew in the New Testament. New Testament. Remember I said that even in Matthew chapter 3, in the baptism account of our Lord, that during His earthly journey, he told John the Baptist to baptize him because it fulfilled all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. And after being baptized, verse 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him and behold, a voice out of the heavens, that's God the Father, and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. You see, if we're pursuing Christ, and if Christ is well-pleasing to the Father, then as we pursue the Son, we too will be well-pleasing to the Father. That's, that's God's plan. Not, not exactly, not perfectly, not like the Son of God, but after His likeness, according to His image, in ever-growing fashion. Yes, it's, it's true. And you say, well, how do I do that? Because I've, I've got these bills and, and I, I need clothing and I'm, I'm fearful and I have anxiety and I don't know that these things will be given to me, will be added to me, will come to me. And because of that, I'm fearful 
and I'm anxious, and I want to know, will God in fact do this for me? I want to be well-pleasing to Him. What does Matthew chapter 6 say, verse 33? Does it not say, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you? What are the all things? Food, shelter, and clothing. All the necessities of life. Did not David himself say in the Psalms, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. How about John chapter 8? Isn't this how Jesus marked his earthly life? This pleasing of God? This being well-pleasing to the Father? John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me, Jesus said, He has not left me alone. Notice this incredible statement. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. What a goal. What a goal. What an aspiration. What a desire. That's that's like Psalm 73, 25, right? Lord, there's, there's no one like you at all. And no one on the earth that I desire besides you. I want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and then I can trust that all of these things will be added to me because I want to be like Jesus and Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Lord, that's what I want to do. And you say, yeah, but what what happens when I don't? Confess it. Seek forgiveness. Bask in the forgiveness that you've been granted in Christ at the cross. Regrip. Regrip on these truths. Confess and forsake. Tell the Lord about it. He's your heavenly Father. He wants you to be well-pleasing to Him. He wants you to follow the Lord. In fact, look at John chapter 17. Isn't this tantamount to a one-sentence statement that sums up the entirety of the Christian life? John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Do you want to know what eternal life is? Here it is. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's eternal life? Knowing God. Knowing Christ. Pursuing Christ. You say, what's the purpose for my life? Knowing God. Pursuing Christ. I can always find a job. I can always find someone to marry, I can always pursue those things if indeed I'm all about pursuing Jesus Christ with every fiber of my being because when I find those things, it's only as a result of Jesus Christ in His love and mercy and grace giving them to me as good gifts because He loves me and He cares for me and He wants me to be joyous and happy and fulfilled, and passionate about Him. Look at Acts chapter 9. I alluded to this last time as well, but I didn't read it. This is Paul being thrown down on the Damascus road. This is the Lord's plan for him. You want to know the purpose of God for your life? Here was the purpose for Paul. Verse 15 Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine 
to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You say, I want to know the purpose of God for my life. You know what the New Testament says? Part of that purpose? You're suffering. You say, didn't sign up for that. Did not sign up for that. In fact, I thought I was out behind the back door when that call came just so I could avoid it. No, Christian life's not all about getting all the goodies. Christian life also calls for suffering, suffering for His sake. For in the suffering, you are bound for glory. Suffering, glory. Suffering, glory. How about Romans chapter 8? You know this well. Somebody says, what's the purpose of God for my life? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? What job am I supposed to have? What's, what's God doing in my life? I want to be pleasing to Him. Here it is, verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Great! What is His purpose? Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Guess what? That goes all the way back to Genesis 1. It's the image. It's the image of Jesus Christ who is the expressed image of the Father. That's the purpose. You don't have to pursue it anymore. You know it. All you have to do is begin to live in light of it. And I ask, are you living in light of that purpose? Are you living for that purpose? Are, are you bound or you die to live out that purpose so that you can be well-pleasing to the Son who is well-pleasing to the Father. You see, that's what it says. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. This is spiritual transformation from one level of glory to another by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what God's doing. He's on a relentless pursuit to conform you to the image of His Son, and He's transforming you from one level of glory to another. And look at chapter 5. Verse 6, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we, were, while we are at home in the body, that means we're still in this earthly tent, we are absent from the Lord. He's in heaven, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body. We want to go be with the Lord, to be at home with the Lord. But, verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition. This is what somebody, if they were to say to you, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, hey, what's your purpose? What's the purpose-driven life all about anyway, Christian? Here's what you say. Verse 9, I have as my ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's your purpose. That's your purpose. And... 
God, in His infinite grace and wisdom, will always figure out for you as you diligently pursue being pleasing to Him how it's going to work out very practically and individually in all your individual lives. He'll figure that out. Trust Him. He'll bring you to it. And you'll marvel at His grace. And you'll marvel at His direction. How many of you say in your hearts right now, I just marvel at the way that He gave me that job that I have. I just marvel at the family He placed me in. I just marvel that He's given me all these things. And you say, well, you don't know my family. You don't know my job. I don't like it. And I sure don't like my family. Did not Joseph say in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for, for good. You know what I say about the broken home I grew up in? It was an awesome training film on how not to do things in a family. I've learned profound lessons via the power of error. You know, sometimes we can learn by watching error as much as we can by seeing the truth lived out by godly people. Yes. And we can learn so many lessons so frequently and so wonderfully that when we turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and you're saying, when's this guy going to quit? This is what it says, Ephesians chapter 4. This is, this, is what, this is what we're doing. Verse 24, and put on the new man, which in the likeness of God, remember Genesis 1? in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And that's what Colossians chapter 3 says. Same idea. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, And have put on the new man who is being renewed, that is, in its process now, of being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Yes, I'm living out the very image of God in my life because He's renewing me day by day. I'm being transformed from one level of glory to another and it is according to the expressed image of Jesus Christ who Himself is the expressed image of God the Father. That's God's plan. That's His purpose for me. That's why 2 Peter 3.18 says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in that grace and knowledge. Grow in that likeness. Be transformed in that image. And when you pursue God with that kind of holy vengeance, with an appetite for Him that exceeds all others, then He will always be able to lead you in the practicalities of life. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't have anxiety. He will lead you. And how will He do that? Our very last verse, 1 John 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Oh, to know Christ. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you're here and you've never genuinely professed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, then I invite you to do it right now. And if you are, 
then are you basking in the afterglow of all of these texts that prove unmistakably that to pursue God's purpose in your life is none other than pursuing Jesus Christ with all your heart. And all these things in life will be added to you. Let's pursue Christ even today. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we want to know you. And yet this sin hangs onto us like an old coat that's stinky and smelly. And we want to we want to put that old coat off and we want, we want to put on the new coat of righteousness and holiness. Lord, we know that we cannot do this unless you come to us and you are pleased to impart to us the truth that we are desperate, we are naked, we are blind, we are sinful. And we cast ourselves upon you, upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world who loves sinners like us and who has purposed to save sinners like us. And Lord, the sinner that I am, I pray that I would be delivered from that sin because of Jesus Christ through His death, through His burial, through His resurrection from the dead and through His ascension to the Father and through His soon coming return so that when He does return, He will take me to be with Him where He is, so that I would be forever with the Lord. I pray that if there is anyone here who doesn't know Jesus in a personal and saving and sanctifying way, that they would confess Him even right now. And say, Lord, I need Jesus Christ in my life. I need Him to transform my life from what it is to what He desires it to be. I want His purposes, not my own. And if you're a Christian, and if you've been living selfishly for the pursuit of your own pleasure and purposes, and you recognize and you fully acknowledge that you've been off the track of these very passages that we have so briefly gone over, I pray that you would say, even today, Lord, allow me to pursue your purposes and not my own. And allow me to be transformed from one level of glory to another, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to know Jesus Christ, for in knowing Him is eternal life. May it be so. And may I rejoice in your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Oh, Lord, thank you for all of these things. May we praise you for your abundant grace as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.